This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue panting. You're working hard, real hard, and you're thirsty. You need vitamins, nutrients for peak performance and energy. And your plants do too. Aw, I mean, just look at the little guy. Water-soluble plant food from miracle Grow is full of essential nutrients. Just a little scoop into your watering can and boom, instant feeding and bigger, more beautiful plants. It's kind of like a sports drink for your plants. You may have to suffer from heat, but your plants do not. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. It is a very special episode of With Friends Like These because I am struggling with a head cold. And prior to the show, I took some cough medicine. So it's just going to be a ride. I'm just going to warn everybody right now. Like the interviews are a little bit of a ride. They are good, though, I think. Um, Maybe you should take some cough medicine yourself. Uh, You might enjoy them more that way. Uh, We are taking on um, the debates over cultural production in this show. Kind of intra-family progressive fights over who gets to say what in the pop culture sphere. We're going to start with Kat Rosenfield, who is a writer for New York Magazine. She wrote a big piece for them this week about uh, the YA Twitter drama over a book called The Black Witch. And she and I talk about sort of just the fallout from that piece and why is it important or not important that people are having this debate over cultural representation and appropriation in the young adult novel sphere. And following that up, going to talk to my favorite expert on Twitter and pop culture and on dragging people, Ira Madison III. He is my former colleague at MTV News and a current culture critic at GQ and the Daily Beast. And uh, yeah, strap yourself in for that one. It's it's going to go some places. Welcome to the show, Kat Rosenfield. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. So you're a reporter for Vulture, the pop culture and arts section of New York Magazine. And you had a piece out this week that I saw everywhere. Um, it got picked up a lot of places, sparked a lot of debate. Uh, the headline was The Toxic Drama on YA Twitter. Young adult books are being targeted in intense social media callouts, draggings, and pylons, sometimes before anyone's even read them. Yeah, and that about sums it up. And, and your story is about a, a specific book, you sort of take as an example, called The Black Witch. Uh, and it was apparently there's some buzz about it. And then someone got a hold of it and went to town. So, yeah, um, it had been, you know, pretty well received so far. It was doing, uh, it was doing well in terms of reviews and the trades and so on. And, uh, one blogger who had an advanced readers copy, um, decided that, you know, she disagreed that she felt the book was very racist and she uh, posted this really long review. It was like about 9,000 words, um, really just kind of systematically decrying it for being, uh, I think she called it the most racist 
offensive or most dangerous offensive book that she's ever read. Mm. Um, and because of sort of the the dynamics on Twitter and the way outrage can really just pick up so much steam so fast there, um, it turned into a huge controversy. And there's sort of, a, I think the reason why this this story caught on, there are multiple reasons. The one that made me interested is that it sort of encapsulates a lot of the different debates that we're having in larger society, right? Uh And there's also just irony upon irony in the story itself. And one of those ironies is that the the book, The Black Witch, and I feel like I want to point out The Black Witch, for some reason, the title never comes into play, even though people are talking about the book being racist. The Black Witch is literally, it's it's about a witch dressed in black, right? So I think so. I actually, I didn't read it um, because I, I didn't feel that it was, I wanted to keep my distance from the actual material since I was talking about what everybody else thought about it. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure actually what where the title originates from. Hmm. Interesting. Well, because one thing, the content of the book is important in the debate in that the author's apparent aim was to try and talk about how one unlearns racism, right? Like that's yeah, the, in the... In the context of a fantasy world. Right. Um, you know, using that to kind of explore the topic. Right. In the, in the fantasy world, uh, the races are elves and uh, werewolves and they, they're stand-ins right. for other races. Um, yes. And in the, the plot of the book, it very loosely is that this young woman uh, has a hero's journey, um, like familiar for a lot of YA, um, where she goes to a, you know, wizarding school like you may have heard of in other books, um, and sort of unlearn some of this classist racist um, stuff that apparently is the larger framework for her society. But mm-hmm. what people called out was the fact that she does begin the book, and the book is about a society that's very stratified. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, the complaint was that, you know, she... You know, she starts to awaken um, to the fact that she's been indoctrinated into the fact that, you know, her education so far has been missing some key pieces, um, but that it doesn't happen fast enough or fully enough, um, or in some cases that, you know, some people felt that the author didn't execute it well. Mm-hmm. And how did you get interested in this story? I had been observing for like the past year or so um, that the tone surrounding um, free expression in the context of the arts in progressive communities had been kind of shifting in interesting ways. And so that was something that you that has been happening in YA specifically. That's where I sort of have my window as a, a person who used to write YA and write about YA. Um, but when this controversy erupted, it was such a, a huge deal. And it was such an interesting example of how all of the the different factors, you know, the, the critical engagement through the lens of social justice and Twitter dynamics and all of this stuff could combine to create such an extreme example of, um, you know, one person's opinion becoming kind of gospel within a community and uh, becoming just this massive campaign against the book. And what did you find out in reporting it. So it it sparked your interest because it is sort of a microcosm of this larger, uh, very dicey area of call-out culture, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And and I don't want to call it political correctness exactly because what's interesting to me about this 
debate or this dynamic is it's actually occurring all on the left side of the spectrum, right? Yeah, in this case, it is. Yeah, uh, it's it's between people who are more people who uh, varying degrees of wokeness, <laughs> yes, <laughs> or to exactly. fight over wokeness. Yeah, one yeah. of the, uh, the the women that I interviewed for this piece um, described it as people yelling at folks who agree with them. Mm-hmm. And she was sort of stunned by how unproductive that seems, which is something that interested me at all, you know, also. And what do you feel, so when you were reporting this piece, like what what did you feel like you found out about the story? You, you dove into it because um, it is this microcosm. And so what unfolded for you? I was fascinated specifically to find that as much noise as this stuff makes on social media and as much as it, it makes life difficult for authors and also for teen readers who feel that their reading choices are being policed and shamed, um, that it's not really having an industry impact. Publishers feel that it's something that they should ignore. Mm-hmm. Then what's the point, right? Like, what is the point of paying attention to the debate? What's the point of listening to it? What's the point of engaging in it? Yeah, I mean, except that, uh, you know, obviously people enjoy being outraged. Uh, <laughs> it feels good to to rail against something. Um, but the, since the stated goal of a lot of these controversies or a lot of these campaigns is to improve diversity in young adult literature, it doesn't seem to actually be having that kind of impact. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that is a good question. What is the, what is the point? Or, you know, perhaps is there a better way to do this? I mean, I, I was struck, yes, by, first of all, it's very clear in your reporting two things. One is the people involved in these debates feel incredibly passionately about it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they're in they're high stakes uh, debates, not in terms of whether or not the book gets published, but in terms of the, the emotional impact and the uh, degree to which people feel like they can and can't uh, express themselves. But it's a fairly small number of people who are participating. The the other thing that's happening is the observers inside the industry are kind of like, eh, you know, diversity is important. That particular drama, we're just not going to participate. And in, in fact, with the particular book that you trace the arc of, it apparently had zero impact on that book. Yeah. I mean, I think that it changed the way that the publisher promoted it in some ways. I, you know, I can't speak to that for sure. Um, since Harlequin did not comment for this piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that in terms of, you know, there was maybe less promotion happening online just because anybody who mentioned the book would be piled on by people, you know, calling it racist. Um, but in terms of the impact on sales, it doesn't seem to have been particularly significant. And there are also, there is this kind of Streisand effect of people, you know, wanting to see what the controversy is about. And there are also people who observed the controversy and thought it was ridiculous and, you know, bought books out of spite, which is another interesting aspect of it. And that's actually something I I did want to mention to you and find out if you had a point of view on it, which is that there was a part of me as I was reading this story, fascinated though I was, I thought, I wonder if this should have been raised to the level of attention that it got. Not like I'm, I'm not like I'm saying to you, like you should have written this story. Although part of me is wondering, like, because what, you know, go ahead. I mean, if it, if it were a, if it were an isolated thing, I would say, yeah, absolutely not. Um, This is, but this is something that's happening in the industry. And I think it's, it's really interesting. And it does in some ways speak to 
a struggle that's happening right now in publishing to improve diversity. Um, and, uh, you know, it also speaks, I think, to some things that you see sort of happening in the wider world of the arts, where there's this question ha- uh, being asked of, you know, who gets to tell certain stories, um, you know, who should stay in their lane and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because that's very that's part of the debate for this was, you know, uh, you bring up the, the, the issue of diversity in white publishing, which is a real one. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, the, the industry is extremely homogenous. It's very white. And that's something that um, a lot of the most vocal members of the campaign against the black, which, you know, feel very passionately about and want to see change. What's interesting is that nobody disagrees with that. Everybody that I spoke to, even the ones who you know, wanted to talk about how toxic and scary the conversation has become. Um, everybody identified themselves as being for diversity and thinking it was really important and thinking that the industry has big changes to make. And, and I looked up statistics. I mean, I think it's something like 82 percent of all publishing jobs are white people. Um, and most of them are white women, something like 80 percent of yeah, editorial it's, jobs it's are white women. Yeah, it's dominated by white women. Um, and, and you said you, you've said you said earlier that you didn't actually read the book. No, I didn't. Um I wanted to focus on the controversy itself, and that was really more about reporting what other people thought about the book. I felt that it was actually better, you know, in order to approach this piece in as unbiased a way as possible, not to have an opinion. Hmm. I, I, I'm humming because I didn't read it either, but I read the long 9,000 word call out. Oh, absolutely. Review. I that too. <laughs> <laughs> and so I don't want to, I mean, I, I should foreground that I, again, I didn't read it either, but um, the book didn't strike me as being particularly wonderful, let's say. like, Yeah. You know, I, I have, I don't know. I, this is going to, I'm going to phrase myself awkwardly. So it, it might be something that you might want to cut this piece out. Okay. But, um, I think that there there are two questions here. It's you know, is it a is it a good book? Um, is it well written? You know, is it is it well done, crafted, et cetera? Um, which is a question that is absolutely you know, sort of more typical in terms of literary criticism, the kind of thing that you talk about. And then there's does this book reflect progressive values, which is a sort of a I think a more recent and a different lens. For critically engaging with literature. Right. Although it also seems to me that they're not unrelated. I mean, it, because, you know, like I would think, so there's also the other statistic I looked up. Um, there is a group that does diversity count of characters in YA literature. And I believe um, it's something like 20 something percent of characters. Yeah, this is something that we uh, that we touched on a little bit in the piece, yeah. um, which is that there has been this push for diversity, and it's resulted in a lot more books about minority or marginalized characters, mm-hmm. but not so many books by minority or marginalized authors. That you know, one is beginning to outpace the other. Right, which means that there are uh, privileged or otherwise um, non-marginalized people writing about characters that are. That's yes, just exactly. the math is inescapable on that. And yeah. I guess like as I was reading the excerpts and, and reading the controversy, um, part of me was like, you know, I do hope this debate has some effect 
on publishers because like if you're going to do a yet another white author doing yet another hero's journey about yet another wizarding school, like mm-hmm. maybe you should pick a better book. Yeah. You know, I mean, people, people were very split. Like I said, you know, the, the question of whether the book is, is good or enjoyable, I think is very much a matter of taste. Obviously a lot of people thought that it was terrific. And then some people thought that it was a piece of crap. Um, well, I mean, it's just interesting because I know you've already taken the position that, that the quality of the book shouldn't matter in reporting about this controversy. And I'm just stuck on, like, maybe the quality of the book should matter. Because in um, art, I guess like, we, I mean, we make allowances for are... we make allowances for books that have some, let's, as the term of art is, problematic passages or hmm. characters or ideas or themes because they're tremendous works of literature, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we, we let kids read Huck Finn you know, and we let them read, um, I don't know, like 1984, which has horrible like things in it, but it's regarded as a work of art and that those, you know, horrible depictions of torture or misogyny or abuse are important in serving this larger cause of uh, ideas that are could not be presented otherwise in the case of like 1984. And in the case of like Huck Finn, we accept that there are things in it that are objectionable in, to our modern mind, but we also see that the writing and the ideas and the story are carried along to timeless values, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it should matter some. Yeah, I guess the question is, um, does it matter in the sense that you get to look at this book and say, I think that it doesn't deal adequately with the issues that it's trying to engage with and I'm not going to read it. Um, but then there's, and in this case, the tone of the controversy took it a step further, which was, I think this about the book and therefore it shouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. But the shouldn't exist people are pretty marginal, right? Yes and no. I mean, the the tone of this particular controversy, the, the stated goal was to get um, Harlequin to pull the book. Right. But that but it wasn't a lot of people and obviously it didn't work. But you're concerned. Right, no. But it sounds like I mean, you're concerned of the, in the, about this as a trend. I think it's, you know, it, it has troubling implications, I guess. You know, certainly um, if this becomes the criteria for what is and isn't allowed to exist then, um, you know, you have an issue of, of free expression there um, mm-hmm. that I think needs to be dealt with. I think the most interesting um, perspective in the piece and maybe the place where I at least personally fall in my reaction to it is the person you interviewed. I should point out it's an, it's actually an important part of the piece. No one gave their name or very few people gave you their names, right? Like everyone yeah, wanted to person, not play. One person was willing to go on the record. Everybody else wanted anonymity on, on both sides. Right. People are very afraid to be seen speaking candidly about this. Right. Um, you talked to someone, and I don't remember if it was an editor or an agent, who considered themselves an advocate for diversity and who said – uh, this is a you know sort of a sticky place we're at in the arc of this um, goal of having more diversity. Like that's mm-hmm. the problem here is we're at this place where we're where we've all decided that diversity is a value and progressive ideas are a value, but we haven't reconciled you know the the entire giant machinery of publishing with that value. Mm-hmm. 
And that's so we're going to inevitably get some of these fights. And some of them might be, I mean, this is, here's where my point of view comes in. You know, some of them might be worthwhile. Some of these debates might be, have points that everyone can agree are important or that the the sins of the author are in fact worth calling out. And then some of them are going to be people calling out others over insufficient you know, wokeness that maybe seems somewhat trivial, but that it's kind of unavoidable at this particular point in the publishing industry's growth, let's say. Mm-hmm. That seems to be what that person was saying. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, this is the thing, you know, the idea, um, and he, he was somebody who did feel that these books are harmful, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is then, I mean, once you've got that framework going, uh, then it's, you know, it seems kind of like a no-brainer to say they're harmful and they shouldn't exist because who wants something that causes mm. harm out in the world. Um, but one of the, the interesting parts of that conversation was that even though he, you know, is more on the side of, you know, yes, sometimes these um, draggings are productive and sometimes it's called for, um, there's no system in place to adjudicate when it's called for. And nobody seems to be able at this point to articulate what that system should be, like who should make that call, who gets to decide what's offensive or who, what's so offensive that an author shouldn't be allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, is there ever, though? I mean, do we have that? Is there there's no I mean, that's the, the thing about, you know, a liberal democracy is we we don't have official adjudication right. of that stuff. Exactly. It doesn't exist right now. Um, but the future, you know, that that some folks seem to be kind of wanting to move towards in which, you know, it's a standard thing to say, no, this is too offensive. Like it can't be published. It shouldn't exist. Um, That that idea is there for sure, but how to implement it hasn't been developed yet. And I'd be really interested, um, you know, to see what, how they think that that would work. Yeah. I mean, I guess part of me wonders, though, if this the reason why I, I was attracted to this particular person's take is seeing it as part of a process is that mm-hmm. I wonder if in 20 years we aren't having these debates because in a truly diverse publishing world, the, the choices are going to be different, you know, like. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that there's. One of the things that this piece illuminated for me was that the need for diversity in publishing in the industry itself, in terms of who is being published and who is publishing, right. um, is really great and and urgent, and it needs to happen. Um, the other thing that I think emerged for me was that there are questions about how widely applicable diversity is, you know, does it work as a lens for critically engaging with the work? Like, are we going to use that to decide what kinds of stories get published um, or whether a book is good? That's an interesting question to me. Yeah, I think that's actually, that nails down the, for me, what the real problem is, right? Um, but also the thing the thing that I think might be solved by having actual diversity in the system. <laughs> I absolutely agree. I think that, you know, the that's the place where the most productive um, and long-lasting change will happen because it'll happen at, you know, from the ground up. And once you have a greater diversity of authors writing a greater diversity of stories being published by a greater diversity of editors, the question of what's actually in the books almost 
will cease to matter, or at least that would be my hope. Yeah, that's that's what I think, right? Because in reading the book and, you know, again, I have an opinion based on my the excerpts and not on actually reading it. Um, I wondered if like a really diverse staff of people at a diverse publishing house would have picked it, you know, this particular book. Like That's an interesting question. And not because it's just it just wouldn't have resonated because, to be frank, like it is the story, the 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 slam on it from that blogger that it's sort of like, a you know, redemptive tale for people who feel good about being woke. Like, it's not it doesn't seem that far off. And, you know, I think people coming from a different, you know, different angle may not have, you know, chosen it. It may not have been revelatory. Like the message of the book may not have meant that much. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, the most common criticism of the book from people who, you know, engaged with it and, you know, maybe didn't like it, but also didn't go so far as to say, you know, this is the most dangerous offensive book I've ever read, um, is that the message is just, you know, it's heavy handed. Um, yeah, trite. That's something, yeah. yeah, that's something that we, you know, I saw quite a bit. You know, that was the most common criticism. Which, again, I do, sort of, I, one thinks that if, what, again, so I would point out that maybe a, a, a publishing house with a different lens <laughs> might just yeah. might not have seen the story as being an important one that needed to be told. I mean, but we'll yeah. see, like, one can hope. I mean, things are getting better but they do just have this enormous hurdle like for those who haven't seen the statistics like why publishing has historically been very white um, and continues to be even though it's gotten somewhat better it's been a a decades-long issue that Mm -hmm. how white children's and young adult books are yeah i mean it's uh i think it's in in part a function of the fact that publishing is um an industry that's located almost entirely in new york city and that pays very, very little. Mm -hmm. So the kinds of people who are going to, you know, be able to clear that bar to, you know, make a living or to, to survive in publishing on a publishing salary, um, are probably going to look a certain way. You're going to end up with a certain, you know, uh, demographic that's better able to keep those jobs. Yeah. I mean, it all comes back to the, you know, to the means of production. Uh, <laughs> that there is like there people, only people who are privileged can have the luxury of working in publishing. And that That's, to a certain extent, very true. Yeah. I mean, the, these you, you, houses have diversity programs, but it's difficult. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I'm, I'm one hopes. I mean, I hope that we also see a revolution here around self-publishing and, um, you know, the, the blowing the barrier to entry for books by diverse authors. Um, which... Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I hope personally that it will be, that that will happen simultaneously, that maybe there will be sort of, um, you know, movement in that direction on the self-publishing side as that becomes um, a, a more viable way to get your books in front of people, but also that publishing will fix itself and improve its, you know, the, the homogeneity of its ranks. But it won't fix itself without people complaining. So No, absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and one hopes also just people will keep it. We're also both being, I think, maybe somewhat optimistic in that reading is a part of young people's future. I think they still read. I'm pretty sure they do. Oh, oh gosh, absolutely. Um, you know, teens, teens read. They okay. do. Um, they're some of the most passionate readers out there. <laughs> Which is why they're having these debates. Um, yeah. uh, they have these debates because they care so much. There is a part of me that always wants to point that out and um, 
when when adults uh, get interested in these stories about um, young people fighting over wokeness, like on mm-hmm. you know, PC debates on campus and stuff. I always want to point out part of it is just that it's they're young people. <laughs> yeah, they're young. What's interesting to me about the Black Witch is that, you know, there were um, the people who were amplifying and, um, you know, making making this into the phenomenon that it was were absolutely teens. The people at the head of the campaign who, you know, were originally pushing it out um, are all adults. And that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah, it is. Of course, that's also kind of what happens on campuses, too. Um, but mm-hmm. it's the young people's passions that get, you know, uh, inflamed, the, get inflamed and make it make it seem so dramatic. Because, frankly, like when you're under 25, everything seems really fucking important. It's very, very big deal. Everything. Very big deal. Everything's important because it is. It, it, to you, it is. Right. I mean, like, that's the whole. Yeah, of course. And we have a whole separate discussion about that's one of the reasons why YA literature is attractive to adults, probably, is because it is such a passionate genre, right? Like every issue is life or death, like, and it's chiaroscuro, right? Like just all the things that we experience as adults, but written um, and portrayed in these fantastic ways that, you know, call. Yeah, call I think to that our may passions. be true. Anyway, um, thank you so much for being on. Um, I you know, look forward to seeing how this all plays out in the industry. And uh, Me too. I mean, I'm glad that it's sparked as many conversations as it has, and it'll be great to see what comes next. All right. Thank you so much, Kat. All right. Thank you. So many of us get our news from social media. In fact, this show gets its news from social media. This entire episode is basically about getting your news from social media. But we need more than just opinions and takes from our friends to stay informed. And that's why I read stuff like The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Vanity Fair, New York Magazine, you know, established places that invest real money in real journalism. And you can get them all in one app. It's called Texture. With Texture, you get access to 200 plus magazines full of in-depth interviews and stories all in the Texture app right on your tablet or phone. The Texture app has gone beyond delivering just the magazine itself, too. They've made it easy to find and enjoy the articles you want to read with daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. I understand video is a big thing with the young people these days, but they also just have really good ways of experiencing the written piece without having to carry around tons of magazines. The Texture app is the easiest way to feed your curiosities with top stories and new and noteworthy sections updated throughout the day. And Texture just makes it easy to love magazines. Uh, Vanity Fair, like I said, Rolling Stone is on there. I also uh, use it to read decor and food magazines, which are the kinds of things that I usually just pick up once or twice, but don't really subscribe to. And I can do that with texture. Texture is searchable, which is especially nice again for those decor and recipe uh, magazines. You can mark what you like, check out back issues, view bonus video and content, and they even curate articles in magazines just for you or whoever you're giving Texture to this year. Texture is normally $9.99 a month, and you get to over 200 magazines. But if you sign up right now at texture.com slash friends, you get a 14-day trial for free. Why subscribe to just a couple of magazines when you can have all your favorites on your smartphone or tablet all the time for way less? Plus, Texture was selected as one of Apple's top 2016 iPad apps. So start your free trial now and download the Texture app. Right now, Texture is offering our listeners Again, a 14-day free trial. When you go on texture.com slash friends, that's 14 days to try Texture for free. When you go to texture.com slash friends. 
So, uh, I get introduced with your new title, Ira Madison III, a culture writer for the Daily Beast and GQ, formerly of MTV News, my colleague, Ira Madison III. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Good. So I wanted to have you on um, as a culture critic and expert on Twitter, Tempest in Teapots and elsewhere. Uh, and the former, you know, your old column, Delete Your Account. So I feel like you're someone to bring on to talk about both cultural production and weird social media catfights. Uh, you're perfect to talk about this YA novel Twitter debate. Drama. <laughs> drama. Right. That is the word drama. So we talked to the author of the piece and um, her kind of, you know, giving us the lay of the land. Um, and she was pretty careful to not have too many overt opinions on this, uh, like a good reporter. To me, what's most interesting about this debate, um, and it's something because it's something you and I have talked about in the past, both on this show and, and as pals, is that this is a debate that's largely taking place among people who have the same stated goals, right? Mm -hmm. Like in general, it's a fight. It's an intra left fight. Um, people who want to be progressive, people who want to be doing the right thing. I think every single person involved would say that they want equal justice and they want diversity and they want all these things. Um, and the tension comes from uh, a group of people who are saying you're not doing enough but, but even more than that, so there's, there's an extreme side of this of, of this sort of debate that says not only you're not doing enough, but what you are doing is harmful. Uh, mm -hmm. And that is maybe a place where I feel like I diverge a little bit. Um, and maybe this is where we can can get into the larger point of uh, when when white people try to do the right thing and it's not good enough. <laughs> <laughs> because to me, I guess um, that's to me the headline on this story um, and why yeah. I was attracted to it. Because, as you know, that's something that I think about a lot is that white people trying to do the right thing and it's not enough. Uh, and they get really defensive and protective about it. Um, is that what you see going on here? Somewhat. Um, what's funny to me about um, all of this is that there's so much talk about protecting teenagers um you know we have to keep the book from the teens the teens the teens the teens what um, about the children and like and most of this is like women in their 30s and 40s fighting with each other you know <laughs> um, me yeah actually you've described me yes <laughs> i'm like where are the teens at um what do they have to say yeah, and there's a couple different places where I think we can enter into a larger, you know, where this has an impact on larger culture. Like one of them is, um, I think, the people who were alarmed by this article say that what they're alarmed by is the tacit call for censorship, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Which, which I feel like is it is you're playing into the so-called censor's hands. When you when you call when you when you say that that's what's the dan in danger of happening, because in mm -hmm. in reality, the people who are critical of this book and saying it shouldn't have been published were a small, small, small minority and, and wound up having almost no impact. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and you dismiss their criticisms when you call it when you call that 
and, and say like, oh, my God, we're entering into this horrible PC age of censorship. Mm-hmm. When really like the proper critique of this book should be, I think, how well is it done? And also in a limited marketplace with limited resources and a limited number of authors that can be on the shelves. Is this the book that you should be publishing? Right. Um, that cultural capital, like cultural production isn't isn't just about art. Um, like these are these are corporations that have profit motives and that have limited resources with which to meet those profits. And it matters where they choose to put their resources, you know. And, Absolutely. and and she can fucking write her whatever book she wants <laughs> like, and have it published on like iUniverse or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting because, you know, the book is already done. Right. Uh, it's, it's weird. Um, you know, people have conflated this with a few other, you know, criticism issues um calling out other works of art Mm -hmm. and um largely it ignores the fact that like a book for the most part like you have to finish it before you can sell it Uh, sometimes (laughs) in ya you don't right um you can sell you know sort of a pitch and a few pages um but for the most part the book is done Mm -hmm. so when you're seeing it or when you get, you know, sort of any sort of idea of what's happening with the book and you're able to critique it, um, it's very hard for you to sort of stop the bus on that. Right. Um, that book is coming out because it's <laughs> been done for like you know, like a year or two. It's been edited. It's gone through galleys. You know, it's scheduled. And there's very little, and and I think what you pointed out earlier in the beginning, like when you talked about the, what what about the teens, is teens are actually like one thing that gets conflated in these debates too is this small minority people are saying like this book is harmful to people. The fact that it exists is harmful to people. Like that's mm-hmm. a tough sell for me, right? It's a very tough sell because um, we can jump into um. Another topic that I wanted to discuss too, you know, with HBO's Confederate. Yes, I, I was. But, there's a um, there is a segue. Whether or not we want it, there's a segue there for that <laughs> for the, for that but, discussion. Um, there's a large difference between that and the Black Witch. Mm-hmm. The existence of the Black Witch does not imply, you know, a history of racism in America. Well, because it's you know? also literally about, like, orcs and shit, too. Like, I yeah. mean... <laughs> you know? It's a very bad book. But the very existence of it on a shelf is not harming teenagers. You right. know, the sight of the book, um, hearing the concept of the book, um, it's, <laughs> it's just not, you know? And I think a lot of this criticism... Um, sort of coddling to teenagers and the fact and you know the fact that they can judge whether something's bad on mm-hmm. their own you know yeah i was able to do it as a teenager um my niece can um and you know like as a parent if you think it's if you think the book just like hor- handles race awfully um don't have your kid read it, you know, read a critique of it. You know, it's a lot like Catherine Bigelow's Detroit. I would never say that that movie 
shouldn't have happened. Um, I would never control someone's art like that. Um, especially because I do think that these two things, you know, the authors intend them as art, Mm -hmm. um, with good intentions. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, watching Detroit, it's a little like watching a YouTube video of a cop shooting a black person, you know, it's harrowing. It's something that we see all the time. And at the end, I'm like, so what was the point of seeing that? You know, um, and that's where she fucked up. Um, and you know, now no one wants to see her race movie. Um, and it probably won't get any of the Oscar nominations that she was thirsty for. Right. So yeah. And let's, let's do sort of what happens when you write something that's bad and people say no. (laughs) (laughs) It is what happens when you write something that's bad and people say no. And I just, I want to sort of like finish my thought on Black Witch and, we, and then I definitely want to move on to Catherine Big, Bigelow no Black Witch pun intended um, uh, when to say that like there's two different questions and in, in I think all these cultural production debates about whether or not a product is racist or does harm to the world and one is that um, should it have been made right and the other is is it good or not and does it existence in the world you know what does its existence in the world mean and I think like with the Black Witch, the question is like, well, it got made. So we can't argue about that. A writer wrote it. So that's it exists. Um, we can I think the pushback to it should be is did the world, as I said to the last guest, did the world need another savior white girl on a going to, you know, on a hero's journey to wizarding school? No, probably not. Right. Like I, I would hope that some of this backlash in, impresses upon the publisher that maybe use your resources to tell different kinds of stories, right? Right. Like that's one useful thing that hopefully will come out of this. And then the other thing is that, yeah, its existence in the world is not a bad thing. Like it is not, it's kids for one thing are more resilient than you give them credit for. And two, it is about fucking fairies. Like, (laughs) and I mean, actual fairies, by the way, (laughs) like with wings, you know? Um, but the, the the debates over Confederate and Detroit are intersect here um, because those those things engage in some of the same sets of questions. But I think my answers to those the questions are different because the products are different. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to do debate de- Detroit or Confederate first? <laughs> um, we can do Confederate. OK. So for people that don't know, if you have been, um, as I, I have been for the past week, I have been on a Twitter fast, but I couldn't even, I couldn't escape this. Um, have you? Yes, I have. I actually have. I have not, been, I have not posted to Twitter since uh, uh, the end of July. Um, what brought this on? Well, I realized I was just wasting a lot of time, basically. It was not like a big, you know, um, ideological stand or some mm-hmm. kind of uh statement about our our current cultural climate it was more that i think i'm getting a little addicted to the quick hit um mm-hmm. you know uh oxytocin um that you get from getting immediate feedback not having a permanent writing gig myself um and having an outlet for longer form writing i found myself kind of like craving feedback on twitter more and i'm like you know what that's not so good like 
I, I should not. Yeah, I should like take a break from this so that I can like reacclimate myself to the normal situation of most people in the world, which is that you don't get immediate feedback on every like dumb thought that you have, you know, you don't. So, yeah, I know. Like, and it's really <laughs> one thing I've learned about this is that like every dumb joke I want to make, like someone else is probably going to make it. <laughs> like, I have actually one joke that I will share here that I did not see on Twitter um, that I want to make, which is that. So those transcripts, the Trump world leader transcripts, you mm-hmm. know, um, the one with the Australian prime minister Turnbull, um, where he like tries to explain his Australia's immigration policy like 17 times to Trump and Trump just keeps on not getting it. Like my one joke was going to be like, what you don't see in the transcript is Turnbull making jerking off motions and rolling his eyes. Cause I think that probably yeah. happened. Okay. So, but that's the only thing, that's the only joke that I have to offer the world. That I didn't already see, but now we're moving on. <laughs> to, to, <laughs> obviously very important. Um, to Confederate, which is the new, a uh, series from the makers of Game of Thrones. It's there, like, was announced with much fanfare. What are you going to do next? Oh my God, Game of Thrones is ending. It's the biggest cultural juggernaut, you know, since Seinfeld. What are you going to do next? We're going to make a series about asking this incredibly, like, out of left field, like, nutty, bizarre, alternate worldview, alternate history question. We're going to ask. What if the South won the Civil War? And that was how they presented it, right? And I think that's part of the story is they presented it as like, we're just, you know, call us crazy. <laughs> we're, we're really into General Lee. Yeah, we're going to do a little thought experiment here. <laughs> no one's ever done before. Um, and, you know, uh, people responded. Uh, I believe you rather succinctly. Um, you, you wrote about this, but I preferred your two word response, which was keep it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, sometimes that's all the criticism you need. <laughs> uh, it's succinct. Uh, it gets to the point. Yep. And I mean, we should talk about it more because the other thing that happened is that a bunch of well-meaning white people got offended, uh, much as with. The, the black witch debate. And I, I get it. I'm a well-meaning white person. I speak fluent, well-meaning white person. Um, I understand why they got their feelings hurt. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I understand the reaction of, we didn't, we didn't make it yet. It might be awesome. You guys don't know. Yeah. Uh, but let's, let's, uh, but let's unpack why it's perfectly okay to say, keep it. Um, so here's the difference with, you know, Confederate. Um, this is not a product. It's a television network um, deciding that they want to do something. It's a pitch. You know, there's no script. There's no characters. Um, the entire thing is ill-conceived. And they released the announcement because... You know, in a perfect world, they were hoping that people were going to be hype about it, that people were going to be like, oh, shit, I can't wait to see slaves. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, shit, amazing. man. What if the South did win? They're blowing my mind. You're absolutely blowing right. my mind. And if, for people who aren't understanding why I'm being so incredibly sarcastic about that, um, I will I will be the person to say the South did win the Civil War in a way. Right. 
I yeah. mean, <laughs> I mean, they kept doing what the fuck they were doing. They didn't anyway. lose. Let's put it that way. They didn't yeah. lose. They may not have won, but they didn't lose. Right. It's like a fight with a sibling, you know, <laughs> the North versus the South, you right. know, like someone won a battle over something, but like your sibling's not dead at the end of it, you know? Right. And, uh, and Stan Easy Coates pointed out, like, if you want a loser in a war, look at Nazi Germany, right? Yes. Like that. Which is why people try to co- compare it to, um, oh, you know, we're just making the Southern version of the man in the high castle. Um, but no, um, cause the Nazi not- Germany actually lost. They, they were, it cost them something when they lost, they had people, uh, tried and executed for war crimes. Yes. Um, they, gone. they were um, right. People aren't waving Nazi flags around in Germany. Um, they are in America, um, for some reason, uh, um, <laughs> white people, um, also don't understand um, the global impact of the Nazis um, and the fact that the Nazis would hate them too. Um, right. But, you know, like, if you're in, I was just in Berlin this year, you know, like, if you're in Berlin and, like, throwing around the Nazi salute and trying to be, like, a Nazi in public, like, you're going to get arrested. <laughs> um, yeah. It's not like the U.S. where you can, where they let you be racist for fun. Um, and then if someone calls you out, you can go on Fox News and say uh, that people are, you know, infringing on your freedom of speech. Right. And also, I mean, like Ta-Nehisi pointed out, like, the, the idea of what if the South won the Civil War can only be said by someone who isn't worried about their grandmother losing her voting rights, who isn't worried yeah. about getting murdered and an extrajudicial killing by a policeman, who um, doesn't suffer, you know, the consequences of the non-loss every day. It can only be imagined by someone who doesn't know history. Right. Or who experiences you know? history as a white person, right? Yeah. Who you know, they're like, oh, it's over. I read it in a history book <laughs> in the North. <laughs> and it's such a specific white person, too. Like one who grew up with a specific set of learning history, mm-hmm. you know, because um, a white person like in the South would not have had this idea just because their inclination wouldn't be, you know, like, what if the Confederacy won? Um, because they live there. Um, and the Confederacy is alive and well. I mean, yeah, there's the, the you know, I sent you an article before the show started um, about how the next governor of uh, South Carolina is, is is calls herself a daughter of the Confederacy and thinks that we should mm-hmm. be able we meaning they um, should be able to, to use the Confederate flag. Um, there's a senatorial candidate in Virginia who basically ran his, on <laughs> keeping Confederate monuments. I mean, and our fucking Jeff Sessions is attorney general. Like, <laughs> you know, like the Confederacy is alive and well. You don't really need to imagine that much. Yeah, they love talking about it. And the other thing I've, I think that's a really important point of distinction between this and, and the Black Witch, you know, uh, debate is that I looked this up. In 2012, which is a long time ago, there were 10,000 young adult novels published by, yes. by, by mainstream publishers um, of one sort or another. 
I imagine that number has grown because that business is booming. Uh, HBO has three hour-long dramas that it produces. So Confederate is just a bigger thing than The Black Witch, you know? But The Black Witch could get published, it could be on a shelf, and no one would see it. Mm-hmm. There's so many books. Right. And it just um, is it's a choice of like you're going to it's going to be a multi-million dollar investment for HBO. Right. But this involves HBO casting, right. writing scripts, uh, doing a huge marketing campaign, making black actors have to be slaves. You know, like it's there's a lot involved in what it would take to actually make Confederate happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what a lot of people don't just realize, you know, is that like, this is about business, you know, mm-hmm. it's HBO made a business decision. And now people are like, you know, like that is the decision and we're not going to give you our dollars, um, it- which is their right to do. And, you know, had it been the other way, HBO would have been elated. That's why they released this press release so early, um, haphazardly. Too, you know, HBO could have very well filmed this and then just sort of dropped it on HBO without trying to announce it to people. You know, Mm -hmm. like we could have found out about it weeks before it debuted, but they didn't do that. Mm -hmm. Um, And they knew there would be backlash, which is why, you know, they grab the spellbeds to black writers to, you know, sort of be like, hey, it's okay that we're telling this story because we have black people <laughs> on the staff. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. One more time to try it for free, ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. So I, I'm of the mind that the, there should be justifiable pushback on HBO, obviously, about this. Um, I think that they should get the message with their limited resources. With um, They have eight hour-long dramas in production, right? Three that they currently air, eight, eight in production. Um with that incredibly limited slate and with all their resources, they definitely should have thought harder <laughs> about what they wanted to do. Right. Because this is going to pack yeah. just, just hundreds of people's lives. Like you said, you know, this is going to be a cultural machine. Uh, here's where I'm going to really value your feedback. There's a part of me that feels like, you know, I'm going to watch it anyway. Like, and part of me is going to justify that by saying I see that there are black writers involved. Mm-hmm. And part of me is going to justify it by saying, for instance, the Detroit movie um, on paper looks pretty problematic to me. Mm-hmm. You know, 
it's a white woman directing this uh, film about an event uh, where, you know, she has does not have a lot of personal uh, narrative to bring to bear. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but it but I read your review of Detroit. You found it troubling, but but artistically fairly well done. Right. Am I? Yeah, I, I mean, it looks good. You know, and she's a good director. You can tell. Um, the movie itself is kind of bad. Right. Um, but, you know, that's not for people to judge. Right. You know, it's sort of, that's where critics can step in. Right. Consumers can step in and say, hey, I don't like this. You know? Right. What's so, interesting to me about the Black Witch thing is it's not the consumers of the book who are providing the backlash. Right. Right. Well, so let's get, but let's get to Confederate. So like, do you think it's bad that I might watch it? That I think I probably, it just be, to, just to be completely clear. Like I, you said you watch Game of Thrones. I, mean, I watch I Game of Thrones. I love, I love Game of Thrones. Made it to the air. Okay. Yeah. You know, just to judge it. I right. Mean, also would be my job to watch it. <laughs> um, it's true. It's true. And because, like you said yourself, like I also, you watch Game of Thrones. I love Game of Thrones. I have problems with this mm-hmm. depiction of rape and its depiction of people of color. As some people don't realize, the only two people of color in the entire show are both slaves <laughs> or former slaves. Like, yeah, that's it. Like, they're unless you count like this, the Doria, the Dorn people as being maybe mm-hmm. coded as you know they're tan, right? <laughs> Um, um, but they're, they're, I don't know. They're still slaves. Yeah. <laughs> as, um, Jon Snow pointed out this week. Uh, the Dorn people? No, um, Missandei. Oh, right. Missandei, right. Yeah. Missandei's still yeah. a slave. Yeah. And so is Grey Worm. Like, yeah. He was like, you're still a slave, girl. Um, I don't know what you think you're doing, but, um, you're <laughs> getting no shit. <laughs> Oh, my engineer just pointed out Dothraki. Do they count as people of color? And if they if they do, yeah, they're actually they hugely problematic, right? I mean, yeah, you know, they're uh, savages. Um, led by this white lady who sent them in the battle to, right? You know, they they they're and also they clearly like the uh, awesome. We're I love that this conversation has gone everywhere. By the way, I've I've missed talking mm-hmm. to you so much. Um, I, I got in my little like bit about Turnbull and now we're doing like a Game of Thrones recap. <laughs> but they're also like, like that, that um, battle of the, I don't know, what is What is the official name for that battle? The battle of the uh, grain, you know, uh, yeah, convoy? I don't, I don't know if like a <laughs> name for this battle, like the battle of the bastards. Or anyway. The they came well, over the hills, uh, like clearly like Native American style, you know, uh, cavalry, right? And yeah. like the way that they stood on their horses and stuff. So, yeah, they're people of color and they're savages. So anyway, these are reasons why to be, we should be skeptical. But here's an interesting thing. Um, if you think about the Dothraki, you know, like there's a very adversarial relationship um, in the beginning, Drago with uh, Daenerys, you know, very like abusive too mm. and she's sort of like not just adversarial game. like basically like abusive yeah. in the books he rapes abusive. her like huh? in the books he straight up rapes her yeah you know yeah. but also 
I don't know. I feel like there's also moments that just show their interpretation of the books or how they depict things. Just show a lot of idiocy. You know? <laughs> there's, there's Jamie raping Cersei next to Joffrey's dead body and then not realizing that they filmed a rape scene. Right. Um, and it does not bode well, basically. About, when you're writing about the Confederate and slavery, like you're going to have to be writing about race and, you know, the assault of men and women's bodies. And they've done it so poorly with the white people. Uh, I think that they'll do it. Yeah. I mean, as well with black characters. Because the thing about their history in showing sexual assault and their interest in doing this project is that if you don't, have sexual assault as a part of the picture if you're telling if you really want to tell the story of like what if there was a modern confederacy yeah then it's songs of the south right so it has to be in there (laughs) (laughs) but with their track record it's sort of horrifying to think how it will be portrayed right like It's, I mean, and then, so, I mean, I think that one thing that I get concerned about um, when we sort of have this intra-family squabble on the left over things like this, because it does sometimes turn into that with a bunch of, you know, well-meaning white people saying, but we're Um, well-meaning. There is the cry of censorship. uh, And that's not what any... that's not, I think, what the most of us who are critical of this production are asking for. We're not asking for censorship. Mm-hmm. We're asking for... It's deep... not censorship. Yeah, it's also, not, and also it's not censorship, right? It's literally not censorship, too. That's, <laughs> that, is, that is an important point. So many people like to throw around words, too, that like, they don't even know what they mean anymore. Right. Um, and it's... You know, it's... But that's not also what we're calling for. We're like, you decided, you know, you wanted to pitch this show to us and be like, this is going to be the greatest thing since um, Tony Soprano was, you know, going to therapy and being a mobster. But we were like, no, we don't want it. Also, it's consumers responding, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's no different from like, a company like Coca-Cola being like, we're going to release a um, avocado flavored soda, you know? I totally Uh, was going to, that's what's going to be my idea too. (laughs) (laughs) Avocado (laughs) Coke. um, You don't want that. (laughs) Uh, Hollywood release it, you know? Right. Or, I mean, and then there's like, I mean, if you want to really push the metaphor, there's like, okay, release it and it might be bad and we might tell you it's bad. And it might, it, yeah. there's, I guess there's a chance. And what I'm, I guess, where you the metaphor. You gamble your money. Right. And I guess where I sort of come out on the other side of this, kicking the metaphor, is that they're going to go ahead and make it. We know they are, you know. Yeah. Like, they are. And it, it, it might be okay, I guess. Like, it, against odds, against the track record. I'm sure it'll look good. It'll be gorgeous. Um, And they're, but, but what we want, see, what we, I go ahead and say we. Like, is for HBO to make different choices. 
right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like the goal here. It's not censorship, um, which again, people don't even know what that word means anymore. Um, it's like a, we were rooting for you, HBO, learn from this and grow. Yeah, right, right. And then they could. I mean, I they- yelling at HBO <laughs> about how I was rooting for them. Um, and here they go with this dumb show idea, you know, because it also just shows like as a business, like, what are you doing? Like, you're going to air the slave drama right before the new season of Insecure. Right. 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 Would you like you're a big fan of that show? I love Insecure. Yeah, I have. I have not actually seen it, but um, I am told that it is very good. And it is part of what is a little bit of a mini trend of um, black female characters getting to have their own stories and getting to have um, Mm -hmm. their own comic stories. Right. Which is somewhat unusual. Um, I did an interview with uh, Tiffany Haddish last week. Um, And yeah, she's great. She totally charmed me. I was like, we, you know, I wanted to be her friend after we got off the phone. (laughs) By the time we got off the phone, I wanted to be her friend. Um, uh, Talked about a lot of things. It's in the New York Times magazine. You should look at it. But one of the things we talked about is the fact that black actresses historically have actually had an easier time uh, getting ahead in dramatic roles, in roles that require them to be, um, you know, emotionally, do a lot of emotional work, let's say. Um, Yeah. And not a lot of comedy. Like, although we may think of people like Whoopi Goldberg, actual the actual sort of most uh, reliable stars, uh, black women in Hollywood, are dr- dramatic actresses. And it's yeah, hard. I mean, what's interesting is um, there's a lot of a- black actors who are going to jump at the chance to do this, you know, just because it'll be, it's an HBO paycheck, you yeah. know? Right, right. Like, it's maybe a mess, but like, you know, you can't turn down work. <laughs> uh, yeah. You have to pay your bills, you know. Um, what's funny is that uh, you should watch Insecure, actually, because what's funny is they have a TV show within the show that the characters watch every week, uh, which is a slave drama. It's sort of like a parody of the show Underground, mm-hmm. um, which was on WGN until it was canceled after two seasons. Um WGN decided that they aren't going to make TV shows anymore. Uh, it's not like it didn't have an audience uh, and it wasn't good. WGN was just like, um, we're tired of this uh, scripted TV thing. Um, but it was a very good show by a black woman um, about the Underground Railroad. Um, and it had nuance and it um, had beautiful roles for black people. It started, it, um, it started on legend as Frederick the, Douglass, who I understand is being heard yeah. of more and more. Um, and, um, so. But Insecure has a parody of that show that everyone watches, which sort of feels like what Confederate will be. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh, like a lot of furtive looks between like white slave owners and... Uh, Regina Hall playing um, one of the slaves. Um, it's very funny. Okay. Um, and we should you can imagine that. the mess that Confederate will be from that parody. 
perhaps that will be our note to end on. There are still good things in the world, and one of them is Insecure and the slave parody show, um, slave show parody that is uh, contained on it. Um, Ira, it was so good to talk to you. I really appreciate you um, playing along here. Uh, pe- I always love talking to you. Oh, I hope I helped. I think I like you I was did. Everywhere. Well, <laughs> I was everywhere too because I'm high on cough syrup. So, <laughs> so that's just going to be the kind of show it is this week, um, which I'm I'm going to be okay with because we know we're living under the th- looming threat of um, nuclear annihilation, and not uh-huh. everything can be about that. Uh, yes. Sometimes. Um, don't tell people where they can find me at the end of this episode. I don't want um, young adult Twitter to locate me. <laughs> All right. Are you serious? Because I okay. Okay. I was like, I can do that, but young adult Twitter will find you, Ira. And you, fortunately, you have some experience in um, people finding you and roasting you on Twitter. I know you'll survive. Um, <laughs> Uh, People should look up various Ira Madison controversies throughout the years. Uh, They will be amused. You're actually my role model for how to handle um, Twitter brigades. Um, Oh. Yeah, you are. You really are. You're good. You're good at that stuff. All right. You they people could find you if they wanted to. Not the YA people, but people who are interested in your work in general can find you at the Daily Beast and GQ and at Ira. Best Twitter handle ever. And we'll catch up again some other time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And that is it for the show. If you have made it this far, we do assume you're a fan. So please head over to Apple uh, Podcasts and rate and review us. That helps other people find the show in addition to, you know, pushing us up the uh, rating and review ladder, which we do appreciate. If you're a fan of the show, you might also be interested in seeing me do this show live at the Texas Tribune Festival in Austin, Texas on September 23rd, which is my birthday. Uh, We will be doing a live show with Michael Steele, former chair of the RNC, uh, now someone you might see on MSNBC. He is definitely a friend of the pod. I'm really excited to talk to him. Uh, Go to the Texas Tribune Festival website to find out more. Again, that's in Austin, Texas on September 23rd. And let's see, final thoughts. Thank you for bearing with the show. Um, I always appreciate it. Thank you for all the people who have given feedback on the show. We're taking a bit of a break from giving feedback on the feedback, uh, but I want you to know we still read all the letters and everything you have to say is uh, taken into consideration. So if you want to respond to that particular thought, you can write us at withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Again, that's withfriendslikepod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at the show at crooked underscore friends is the Twitter address. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.